This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything from sports to the arts to the sciences to history, and, well, we love comedy. We love funny people, and we've done a bunch of hours on so many great people in the business. And now for the hour, Joey Cortez brings us the story of a man who's worked more jobs than anyone, well, we've known, and whose current profession and accomplishments Well, it's something most of us could only dream of. Take it away, Joey. Men get nervous. They really do. Men get nervous when you get near the family jewels. In baseball, I don't know if you know this or not, in 1871 in baseball, men start wearing the cup to protect the family jewels. In 1971, it became mandatory in baseball to wear a helmet. (laughs) It took men 100 years to realize The brain is important also. (laughs) Women are always saying, you men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. Men could get pregnant. They won't want disability from the moment of conception. Couldn't stand that pain. Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Because I have heard women a year after childbirth say, it might be nice to have another baby. Have you ever heard a man say, might be nice to have another good swift kick in the nuts? A comedian with an extraordinary career, making 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, and a favorite guest and fill-in host for David Letterman. Never did a kid from the south side of Chicago ever imagine becoming friends and colleagues with the likes of David Letterman, Smokey Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra. The very people he only fantasized about during his first few jobs as a kid. In all these taverns that I shined shoes in, there were eight in my neighborhood. Everyone I'd go into, Frank Sinatra was on every jukebox. You know, as was Dean Martin and, 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 of course, Sammy Davis Jr. And so I was listening to the Rat Pack as a little boy while I was shining shoes. That's how I first came, became introduced to their music. Years later, when I came out of the service, after I went in the Navy when I was 17 and came out when I was 21, I went back to tending bar. I worked construction. I attended bar. While I was tending bar in these, in these taverns, of course, Sinatra was on all the jukeboxes. Little did he know that he would become one of the closest people to Frank Sinatra near the end of his life. When I first started touring with Frank Sinatra, there was no question that he was the boss. And then as years went by, he became like a pal, a buddy. We hung out till dawn, you know, night after night after night. He never went to bed till the sun came up. You know, when I'd stay at his home, some nights he'd come and get me at 3 o'clock in the morning in the bungalow I was staying in on his compound and say, let's take a ride, Tommy. And we'd go riding all around the desert and he'd, you know, open up to me and we, we were buddies. And then later in life, he became like a father to me, more like a father figure. He started giving me advice and, um, and I knew that he knew the end was near. And so he was passing on sometimes things that he thought that I should know. And, uh, and so and a lot of the lessons I've learned in life came from, from being with him in the wee hours of the morning, uh, hearing his stories of his childhood and some of the things he might have changed if he could have. Comedian Tom Dreesen. From Shining Shoes 
to becoming one of Frank Sinatra's most intimate friends during the last few chapters of his life. Tom Dreesen's storied life and career began in a south suburb of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, where he learned from Chicago's best comics, everyday, hardworking people in the comedy havens of its time, well before comedy clubs were even a thing. That's right, the local bar. One of the taverns I went to was where my mom was a bartender and my uncle was behind the bar, a man who was my mother's sister's husband. His name was Frank Polizzi and he told jokes behind the bar and I was always fascinated by the fact that this man, you know, I would watch him tell these jokes behind the bar that with his vocabulary, his vernacular and his inflection and his timing, he could tell a story and cause this sound to come out of everybody's body, this laughter that would fill the air like electricity and unite everybody in the room. All of a sudden, everybody was one in unison in laughter. And I was fascinated by that process and used to like to tell his jokes, you know, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. But it, it, it's what first got me interested. So I always loved telling jokes. But little Tommy Dreesen, he wasn't there for the comedy. He was there because he had to be there to help put food on the table for his family. As a little boy growing up poor, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. So we had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. You know, and it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not that old, you know. Uh, so everybody else seemed to be doing quite well. We, we didn't have meals like other kids did. We didn't have a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner. But as far back as I can remember, I was out selling uh, newspapers at the Harvey Tribune. And, and when I was, you know, in first grade, you know, I, I was helping my brother sell newspapers. My sister Darlene helped us too. And then by the time I was eight, I was shining shoes and selling newspapers. And so that's what it was like. And all of this was done to help feed my brothers and sisters. But Tom, he doesn't regret his childhood at all. My core values came from that town where people felt that you only deserved in life what you worked for. I learned work ethic and, and, and I learned a responsibility. There's a sign on my desk right now that says, if it is to be, it's up to me. You know, I learned that as a child, that, that if, if I was going to get anything, I had to go out and get it. That's all I ever understood growing up, that you could get anything in your life if you worked hard for it. But that's all you deserved is what you worked for. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a part of our American Dreamers series. If it is to be, it's up to me. It should be on every wall of every kid in this country. More of Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue Our American Dreamers story and our series with Tom Dreesen's story. Let's continue. Tom Dreesen had quite a rough childhood, and yet... I don't regret any of that. And why would he? It made him into the man he is today. Hardworking, family-oriented, compassionate, a characteristic exemplified through his attitude towards his father's alcoholism. You know, um, that you learn to hate the illness but love the man. My father, Walter Dreesen, wasn't a, a bad guy. He just was an alcoholic. He found the drug of his choice, and it was alcohol. And, and so, you know, money, money was scarce. Um, I remember as a little boy growing up, when I was in eighth grade, my older brother Glenn bought me a watch. It was a Crawford 17 jewel watch for my eighth grade graduation. And I never had a watch before. And I loved that watch, you know. You know and anyhow, um, about a year went by or so, and I couldn't find my watch. And I kept looking all over my watch. And I said to my mom and dad who were in the kitchen, I said, I can't find my watch. And my mom put her head down, but she looked at my dad. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he put his head down, and I knew he pawned my watch. And I realized how bad he was feeling, but I didn't get angry. I, I started covering for him. I said, oh, I didn't wear that watch that much anyhow. It didn't matter. I didn't wear it that much anyhow, because I didn't want him to feel bad. And I, I thought about that a lot in years to come. When I had children, <clears throat> if I ever would have pawned one of my children's watches for drugs or alcohol, I don't think I could have lived with myself. But again, <clears throat> when you're an alcoholic or when you're a drug addict, that's your lord and master. And remember that funny guy, the bartender, his uncle? Yeah, well, little Tommy would learn something about him that would turn his world upside down. When I was growing up, I, I had these eight brothers and sisters, and they, they mostly were blonde hair and blue-eyed, you know. And I didn't think I looked like them a lot. <clears throat> I looked a lot like my cousins, you know. Uh, and my mother was a bartender in a bar that... Uh, with her brother-in-law, and he owned the bar, and my mother was a bartender there for years, off and on. Now, as a little boy, wherever I went, people would say to me, hey, Polizzi, how you doing, Polizzi? I'd say, my name isn't Polizzi, my name is Dreesen. And they'd say, oh, I'll be down, you know, because I looked a lot like this guy, Frank Polizzi, you know, who was my uncle, my, my mom's sister's husband. And I emulated him, you know, I just thought the world of him. But as I got older, when I got around 13 years old, I started realizing where babies came from. I didn't want to think that my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. You know, so I, I had this feeling that he was my biological father, but then I would crush that, just push that feeling down inside me, you know, and um, just didn't want to believe that that ever happened. But by the time I was 15, I really believed it because I really looked like him and I looked like my two cousins, his sons. And he was a real tough Sicilian. He took nothing from nobody, no time. You know, he stood up to the mafia in our town. He was a tough, tough Sicilian. He had a great sense of humor, but he was a man to be feared. Now, I was worried how I was going to approach him with this subject that I had, but I went for a walk with him. And he said, what does he want to talk about? And I told him, I said, I think I'm your son. And he was stunned. He said, why do you think that? I said, because I don't look like my brothers. I look like your sons. And people always mistake me for a policy. He said, well, it's true. 
He said, and your mother and I had an affair, and you're the product of it. He said, now you can go tell the world. It would ruin your mother's marriage, and it would ruin mine, but that's, that's your prerogative. And I said, I don't want to do that. I just needed to know. An alcoholic father, an alcoholic mother, an admired uncle later revealed a biological father who worked in a tavern. It's no wonder what little Tommy Dreesen dreamed to be when he grew up. When I was growing up, that's what I wanted to do one day was own a tavern because that's where my dad spent all of his money. I thought they were the most successful people in the world because I couldn't see outside my environment. I understand when a young kid in the ghetto said he wants to grow up to become a pimp or a drug pusher, he's never seen a more successful man in his life. You know, he, that, that person, that pimp or that drug pusher has got a new car and wads of $100 bills in his pocket. So that kid thinks that's what a successful man does. Tommy, though, did what many young men do to rise above the depths of their childhood torments. He joined the Navy. And you might be surprised to learn what Tom considers to be one of the greatest gifts he received during his service. I was a high school dropout when I went in the Navy. And uh, I ended up getting a high school diploma from the Navy, the GED. And, and uh, I later went to junior college nights. But what, what helped me a great deal was uh, aboard ship, I used to read like any other 17-year-old boy. You read all these sex novels and all that stuff because you're young. Um, full of testosterone boy. So I was reading all these novels and this, this older black man, Washington, said to me, if you're going to read something, why don't you read something that will improve your mind? So he bought me this book by Leon Uris, Exodus. And it was an interesting book. And then he questioned me after, what did you learn from it and everything. From that, I start reading positive mental attitude books. All these books that can improve your mind. Because I grew up in such a negative environment where the parents were alcoholic, and everybody in that neighborhood mostly were, you know, you were a man when you could walk into a bar and buy a round of drinks for everybody in the bar. I had that tavern mentality in my head, and so I, I couldn't think outside of my environment. So these books helped me believe that I could become more than just a bartender. And through this reading, Tom learned something that he wouldn't completely understand until he had his first child. I kept running across these two words, unconditional love, and I couldn't understand for the life of me how you could have unconditional love, you know. But it was two words that I, that I just, you know, loved reading about, unconditional love. And then when I was married and my daughter Amy, they handed me my daughter Amy, and I looked at that child and I, all of a sudden, I understood what unconditional love meant. I knew I was going to love this child all my life and for till, till the day I died. I just knew that no matter what this child did, I would love this child. And to this day, this daughter, when she walks into the room, and she's a grown woman in her 40s, <laughs> when she walks in the room, she's got children of her own. But when she walks in the room, I light up just like I did the first time I saw her. My heart is filled with unconditional love. Tom? He finished his service, got married, and at times worked more than two to three jobs as a construction worker, a bartender, a photographer, a life insurance salesman. The list goes on. But that wasn't enough for Tom. As you've heard countless times on this program, all great men and women 
don't just simply settle down and relax. They do more great things. Tom joined the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs. In those days, they were young men of action. They worked in the community, attacking all the problems of the community, running all sorts of functions to raise money to fight the ills in, in that community. But in doing so, they taught you leadership training. They taught you how to speak in front of an audience. They taught you how to serve on a committee. Then they taught you how to be a chairman of that committee. And they taught you how to, as a chairman, how to delegate authority and how to accomplish things, get things done. So I was very active in, in the, the JCs and community affairs. And little did Tom know that his work as a JC would spark his career in comedy. One of the problems affecting our community in those days were young kids getting involved in drugs. So I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. I wasn't in show business, I was selling life insurance. But I always had a propensity to make people laugh. And so I thought we'd get the children laughing and then plant the seeds of why we came there. So helping me with this project was a young black man named Tim Reed and to show you how fate would have it, I already had a white guy, a guy named John DeBoer, that was gonna help me with this project. And that night that I was proposing running a drug education program to the chapter, this the young black man, Tim Reed, came up and said, he's a new member, just joined that night, said, I'd like to work with you on this project. And I said, thank you, but I already got a guy. The next morning, this friend of mine, John DeBoer, called me and said, I can't do that project, I got a new job. I said, oh gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. And if you're thinking to yourself, I think I've heard that name before. Well, that's probably because you have. Most millennials know him as the father from the hit childhood TV series, Sister, Sister. And most older folk know him from his role as the Venus flytrap in the popular TV show, WKRP in Cincinnati. And when we come back more on the life of Tom Dreesen and those books, boy, and the Navy, he gave him a picture of something better and more beautiful with his life, and he seized on it. And when we come back, you're going to see just how Tom Dreesen and this man, Tim Reed, well, how their unlikely partnership kicks off their careers in comedy. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American Dreamers series, Tom Dreesen's Life. We left off with Fates bringing together Tom Dreesen and Tim Reed to start a drug education program in poor and middle-class communities of Chicago. Him and I worked on what we were going to do in the classrooms, and the first day that I went in the classroom with him, I realized, oh, what a blessing because in the classroom were young black and white children. And when they saw us come into the classroom, a young black guy and a young white guy, we immediately got their attention because the black and white students identified with us right away. And we became an, uh, an instant hit. We would joke off of one another and get the kids laughing. 
and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it in, through their publications as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And then one day after about eight months of doing this, a little eighth grade girl leaving a classroom uh, at a school called St. John's in Harvey, Illinois. She was leaving the classroom, she stopped and she said to both of us, you guys are funny, you ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. And so, they did. And because at the time, comedy clubs weren't really a thing, Tim and Tom gave it a go at a local jazz club and flopped. But they didn't let a little failure get in their way. So the next day we went and I got a huge laugh of something I had written. And it, again, it was like an epiphany. I said, wow, this is what I want to do. It just came over me like, oh, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I got up the next morning and I went to church. It was a Saturday morning. There was no one there. I knelt down and I prayed. I said, God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything more. I promise you, I'll do charities, I'll do everything. And, and the thought that I could make a living as a stand-up comedian, make a living making people laugh, it overwhelmed me. And so, at the height of the Vietnam War, racial tensions rising, societal unrest building, they said, why not? Let's do it. We were turning the nation as America's first black and white comedy team at a time when the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting all over America. African Americans were rioting in every major city, in Compton, in Watson, in, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in Detroit. The largest riot of all was in Harvey, Illinois, where I was born and raised, where, I, where we started out as a comedy team. In the middle of all this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Now, we weren't going across the land preaching. We weren't preaching unity or get together. We just wanted people to laugh. But it turns out, a little laughter goes a long way. I don't know how many times we would go somewhere during this racial tension and that a young white kid or a young black kid, and they'd come up with the same story time and time again. They'd say, the white kid would say, you know, uh, after the show, they'd say, you know, I." I've got a black friend that I want to reach out to. And, 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 and if I do, the white guys are just going to wear me out. Wear me out if I have a black friend. And a black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend and I want to be friends with him, but the brothers are going to, uh, the brothers will wear me out if I, if I reach out to the white kid. But watching you and Tim today, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. That happened to Tim and I more than you'll ever know, told differently each time, but basically it was watching you and Tim up there having so much fun together, making people laugh, made me reach out to, to my buddy of another color. And, and uh, that's the most gratifying thing of it all. Not everyone, though, appreciated the biracial act. In those days, see, you know, racism is strange because if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. And vice versa. Tom says that he was often called a Negro lover and Tim and Uncle Tom by people of their own race. But according to Tom, it wasn't just everyday people who rooted against them. 
it's a strange thing. You know, even in this supposedly, this liberal Hollywood, I don't think they wanted us to succeed. I just, when I look back, I think sometimes that we frightened the hell out of them because we said it can work. We didn't say that in our act, but they saw us performing, having fun together, and it was working. It was working and we we're making people laugh. And if that's the case, then where's the narrative that this is a horrible place to live? This country is a horrible place to live. If these two guys can get along, why can't anybody get along? And therein kills the narrative that we're a racist country, that it won't work, that if we work together. For some reason, that always stuck in my mind that I didn't realize there were people that really didn't want us to succeed. Something that one of Tom's close friends, who was also in show business, warned he and Tim from the very start. He said, you know they're going to try to separate you. He said, Tim, you know they're going to go up to you and say, you don't need that white boy. He said, Tom, they're going to come to you. You don't need that, brother. What hell are you doing with him? He said, it's called divide and conquer. Some people can't stand to see this kind of unity that you guys are, are projecting, whether you like it or not. You know. So, you know, it's a shame because I thought that we were going to become America's greatest comedy team. That was my dream and my hope. When Tim decided to split the team up, it was worse than a broken marriage for me because all my hopes and dreams were in that six years. I wanted to be in show business and I thought Tim and Tom were going to become America's greatest comedy team. And when that didn't happen, it broke my heart. I was devastated. You know, my ex-wife wanted me to get out of show business once and for all, get a job in a factory and bring a check home every Friday night and bring some stability into our life. And I, I went to the corner bar where I used to attend bar and my, it was called a Sulky Inn. And my buddy Jimmy Lepore was sitting bar behind the bar and I'm sitting there and you know, people will buy you, I had two beers in front of me and people will buy you a, a, a drink and hey, give Tommy a drink down and they put a little shot glass in front of you. So I had like two of those in front of me plus two beers in front of me. But I'm just thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, and I thought, you know, I was always real good at, 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 at alternatives saying, okay, I'm not painted into a corner here. What are my options? And I said, I can get another black guy and do the same act or I could go it alone and become a stand-up comedian, or I could get a job in a factory and give up this hope of ever being in show business. And those are my options. And I sat there contemplating, and I thought about it. I said, I'm gonna be a stand-up comedian. I'm gonna do it on my own. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on material, and I'm gonna go out and do stand-up on my own. And I made up my mind that's what I wanted to do. And then I remembered a book I had read, Positive Mental Attitude by W. Clement Stone, and it said, if you know what it is you want to do in life, if you, know, if you want to do something with a passion, and it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble endeavor and get it out of your life. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian? I thought, my wife, no, she couldn't stop me if that's what I want to do, nothing. And I thought, alcohol, I love to drink, like my family did too, I love to drink. I said, you can't have hangovers and go out and and do shows and write material and, and all. So I pushed the beers across the bar and my buddy came up to me and he said, I said, I quit. He said, you're through for the night, huh, Tom? I said, no, I quit. 
He said, for the night. I said, I quit drinking. He went, yeah, right. And I never touched a drop after that until after I did the Tonight Shows and, and, and became successful. And then one night I went out and I, I ordered a beer and it just didn't taste like it used to. And so I, I, I don't drink anymore today. Myself and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. And it's Tom Treason's life we're talking about. His rise from Chicago, tough times, to being on the stage with the biggest to the greatest talent the world knew and knows. This is Lee Habib. Tom Dreesen's story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the final segment of Our American Dreamers story this week. And we've done every kind, folks, from, well, Bernie Marcus's story, the founder of Home Depot, straight through to Al Pacino's. And now we continue with Tom Dreesen's story. As Tom put the drink down, he packed up his bags and moved to Los Angeles, couch surfing and even living out of a car for a month while performing for free at local clubs and begging to get on what is known as the training ground for America's most famed comedians, the Comedy Store, a first-of-its-kind comedy club on Sunset Boulevard. Tom finally got a chance, became a regular act, and perfected his craft along the likes of Billy Crystal, David Letterman, and Robin Williams. Impressive, right? Well, maybe not. See, when in the comedy community in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you had been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one, you might going to be one, but you aren't one now. Because everybody in America believed that one appearance on The Tonight Show, your life changed, and it did. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, the next day he got a sitcom. So it was a very powerful show. Even though there were other shows we could do stand-up on, none of them launched your career like The Tonight Show. 15 to 20 million people watched that show every night. There was no cable television in those days. So that was a show you tried to get on. So in the comedy community, that's all everybody talked about. Want to get to The Tonight Show. And as Tom tells it, he kept pestering Carson's talent scouts to come see him perform at the comedy store. And finally... When one of those scouts came by, Tom made his break. He said, good, you're on next week. And now, for a week, I couldn't hardly sleep at night. This is the biggest break in your career. As I said, 20 million people watch that show. Agents, managers, talent scouts, casting people, everybody watched that show. So for a week, I could hardly sleep. And I get there, and they put me in makeup, and they, and they take me to my dressing room. And then as later in the show, they bring you down to the green room. And then they came in the green room and said, we ran out of time. You gotta come back next week. So I wait another whole week and go through the same procedure, get there. And I get, they put me in makeup and they take me up to my dressing room. Then they bring me down to the green room and they bumped me again. They did this to me three times in a row. 
And now I haven't hardly eaten in a month and slept, you know, finally the fourth time I get there and I go into makeup and I'm in makeup and a producer came in. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. And now a lump gets in your throat about the size of a grapefruit and you know you're going on. And so I, I, I'm in the green room and they come and get me and they take that long walk from the green room to get behind the curtain of the Tonight Show. And they, you know, you walk through there and, and uh, you're standing in the back of the curtain and the coordinator says, are you okay? I say, I'm fine, I'm fine. He walks away <clears throat> and now you, you're trying to remember your material and you're panicking because the music is playing, Doc Severinsen's playing during commercial break. And all of a sudden the music stops and you know you're back live and your heart stops. And then you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome Tom Dreesen? And they open up the curtain and you walk out into these bright lights like you're in an operating room and, and you can't see the audience, they're like shadows. And you hit your spot on the floor, there's a green tape on the floor. And you hit that spot and now the, the applause ends. Thank you very much, I'm a little bit upset. And now you do your first joke and you did my first joke and I got it out and got a laugh, and then I, I did my second joke and it got a laugh, and then I got the third joke and it got a laugh. Then my fourth joke, I hear Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. Now I get seven or eight applause, and, and, and it just was a killer set. And I close with saying, You've been a wonderful audience, and show business is a tough life. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, so if you liked me, just if you liked me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub, tell them about me, will you please? And, and the audience roared and applauded, Johnny roared, and, and I took my bow and I walked through the curtain and Craig Tennis came running around the corner. He said, go back, go back, you gotta go back. I said, go back, go back and talk to Johnny. He said, no, don't go talk to Johnny, don't go talk to Johnny, just go back and take a bow. So I went back through the curtain and, and the audience kept applauding and, and Johnny gave me that little circle with his hand like, good job, you know. And that launched his career. Represented by William Morris, signed by CBS, featured on the most popular shows on television. Tom Dreesen became a household name. I was doing all these shows, but there was one show I wanted to do, was called Sammy and Company. Sammy Davis Jr. had his own talk show. And I had seen Sammy perform years before that, and I just thought he was the most extraordinary entertainer I'd ever seen, so I wanted to do his show. And so they finally got me on that show, and I did all this material on Sammy show this six minute routine about growing up in a black neighborhood and playing basketball on an all black basketball team. And, and I did all these jokes that just broke Sammy up. And he said to me, I'm gonna take you on the road with me. And he did. And he took me all over the country. And we were appearing in Chicago at the Mill Run Theater. And he said to me, have you ever worked Las Vegas? And I said, no. And he said, well, you opened there in January with me. And so now in January, I'm, January 1977, I'm driving down the, the, the main drag of Las Vegas, the Strip, and there on the marquee is Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen. I was just overwhelmed. I you know, never dreamed that I'd ever be in, you know, I mean, I did dream that I'd be in Vegas, but I never dreamed to be with Sammy Davis Jr. And it was just amazing. So I, I, I performed with him for two weeks. And one of the amazing stories, or one of the stories I'll always remember, was that I brought in some of the guys from my own neighborhood that I grew up with to come to Las Vegas and be with me. And it was a buddy of mine, Sammy Eubank, and another buddy of mine, Mike Crowder, and my other friend, Tommy Johnson. Uh, and Tommy's no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago. But we were street buddies together. Him and I, you know, we, we, from the time I was a little boy, and then we set pins in bowling alleys together. He went in a paratroopers when I went in the Navy. 
and we remained friends. When I came out of the service, off and on, I would split up with my wife. We had lived together, you know. We were just a good street buddy. But anyhow, one of the days after the sh we got up in the morning, and we're going out, and, and uh, we're going to roam up and down the strip. And I looked around, and Tommy was gone. And I looked, and now he was looking at the marquee that said Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen. And he was, this is a tough guy who was in the 101st Airborne. You know, just a tough street guy. And tears were rolling down his cheeks. And I looked at him, I said, Tommy, what the hell? What's wrong with you? He said, you don't get it, do you? I said, what? He said, you don't get it, Dries. They, he always called me Dries. He said, you don't get it, Dries. That's what he said. If your name is up on that marquee, our name is on that marquee. The whole neighborhood is on that marquee. And, and it choked me up, you know. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, let's go, let's go get something to eat. Let's take a walk, you know. But this, this was a big deal to him. Most of us never thought we were ever going to get out of that neighborhood. You know, it just, it's something that happens to you that you think you're going to live there, work there, and die there, you know. But it's, it's a moment I'll never forget. And not long after, Tom Dreesen would have the opportunity to open up for the king of show business. After I toured with Sammy Davis Jr. for about three years, I was touring with different artists around the country, including Smokey Robinson, my dear friend. We were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra was appearing at Harrah's, two doors away from Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and I wanted to see his show. So one night after my show, I just bolted off the stage, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harris Hotel was standing out in front of the showroom with a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And I didn't want to miss the opening because I, I had seen Frank once before, and to watch Frank Sinatra walk out to an audience, it was electrifying. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra. He created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people created with their whole act. Just the audience would go wild when he walked out on the stage, and I didn't want to miss that entrance. And so I was running in the showroom when Holmes Henderson called me over. Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over, and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. He introduced me to this big heavyset guy with the scar. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. Well, I recognized the name. Mickey was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and managed his career and also a powerful guy in Hollywood. So he said, Holmes Hendrickson said, Mickey, I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And then a week later, I got a call, uh, you know, saying, would you like to work with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City for one week? I said, oh, yeah, sure. So they set the date. And I went in. I figured I'll get my picture taken with him, hang it in every bar back in Harvey, Illinois, and, and uh, say that I met Frank Sinatra. But the second night I was with him, he and his wife took me out to dinner, and he said, uh, in the middle of the meal, I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested. And I didn't say, well, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, sure. And, and it turned into, you know, 14 years of 45, 50 cities a year, and a friendship that, that I'll, I'll never forget. From humble beginnings, to a successful career in Hollywood. One of the few men deemed worthy enough to perform with America's most beloved stars, Tom Reeson.
an American dreamer. And great job on that, Joey. And what a story. That's just one of my favorites. That's right up there with that Mario Andretti story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear that one. And Dawn LaFrida. And you've never heard of her, but when you hear her story, not everybody has to be a rich, famous star to live the American dream. Starts with one Denny's at the age of 16. She's a waitress. She owns her first Denny's at 21. Owns 75 now, folks. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and the Thanksgiving story well you're about to hear it for the hour it didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863 but the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration what you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hear the Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. 
The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things. At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation 
that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again. But where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean 
this is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the New World, where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a, a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves, after our tears, with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then, with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers. They were not emissaries of a foreign government. They were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrims' devotion and faith 
that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after, the Speedwell has trouble. The master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with the 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough-and-tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A lot of dribbling cock queens. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty, he would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the hours. The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. <laughs> if you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. <laughs> And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! Land! But their jubilation quickly dims 
as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been blazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak, they are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind, and then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. 
He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. 
The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their Native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. 
that he hath prepared for them, a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. We have gravy. Yeah. Oh, and we have the mashed potatoes. Oh, sure, after I pass the gravy. Okay, we've got sweet potatoes. Oh, oh, and It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, gee, the traffic is terrific. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at the time and the holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television. Everything is wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them. And just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you can't
And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon. But it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. And we share it with you here on Our American Stories.